good to see you all. Uh, this morning we uh, continue our series titled Faith That Works, uh, our series in the book of James. Uh, we're examining what it is that James has to say uh, about faith, uh, and in particular a, a faith that works. Uh, a faith that is both faithful and fruitful for the glory of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And to do this we're going to be reading our next passage within James chapter 1. So we're taking time to go through uh, chapter 1. Uh, and examining all of the different points that James has to say. Uh, so we've thought about what it means to have uh, a servant faith, a suffering faith. Uh, last week, TJ took time to look at what it means to have an expectant faith. Um, I hope you're challenged by TJ's message as I was challenged. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, then do uh, take time to connect with what TJ had to, said, had to say. Um, so we've had a servant faith, suffering faith, an expectant faith this morning. Uh, as we continue on in James chapter 1, we're thinking about what it means to be a people who have a perceptive faith. Uh, a perceptive faith. So, James 1 and verses 9 to 11. I'm reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. The words are going to be up on the screen as well. So let's, let's take a moment to, to read these words, starting in verse 9. James says this, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a, like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Amen. Uh, perception is everything. Perception is everything. Let me put it another way. The correct Perception is absolutely everything. If you don't have the right perspective, you will not see what is actually going on. Uh, this past week, we had a, a family birthday. We went out for a meal. Um, it was a late dinner. We met at half seven. I have this issue of getting hangry. I don't know if anyone else experiences that. So we probably started eating quite a bit after 8 p.m. Um, part of the issue for eating our dinner after 8pm was the person whose birthday we were celebrating was late. So we're sitting around this table waiting for this person to arrive so that we <laughs> uh, piped up and said something that quite a few people were thinking. Uh, this is just ridiculous for us late, especially with young kids uh, with us. And for the record, it wasn't my side of the family. <laughs> Just in case you thought it was any of these guys or these guys. Pauline's away, it's fine. <laughs> uh, what made this moment quite funny was that when this person said these words, they couldn't see what we could see. So we could see beyond the complainant. And what we saw was the birthday person in question now walking into the building. Uh, and thankfully, the complaint stopped before we actually arrived to the table. Um, but all of that highlights the absolute necessity of having the right perspective. Um, because the person who complained would not have said what they said if they were sitting in another chair and they could see the entrance and the person walking towards them. They would have a different vantage point, uh, a much bigger perspective. They would see the birthday person walking into the building and they would have no need to say anything in that moment. Their perspective would have determined what they did and did not say and what, what they would and would not do in that particular moment, possibly. 
I'm going to get into trouble after this. Uh, what James is doing here in this passage, he's taking this question of perception and in particular having the right perspective in life and he's, what he's doing is he's pressing it into our hearts and our minds. He wants us to make sure that we have this right. We have this absolutely correct. We carry the correct perspective. And what he wants us to understand is a connection between godly perception and godly living. Godly perception and godly living. So much so that we can't help but in some way respond to this question that James is subtly asking us in verses 9 to 11. So James says what he says in these verses, but behind it all he's saying this, does your life carry the correct perspective? Does your life carry the correct perspective? The truth for each one of us this morning is that it either does or it doesn't. We either have the correct perspective or we don't have the correct perspective. It's as black and white as that. What concerns me most about that question is that there's a very good chance that you don't want to even try and answer that question for your own life. You'd be quite happy to live in ignorance to that question because answering that question is, or it can be, very costly. Uh, to answer that question means that you'll be challenged to no longer do what you want to do deep down. To answer that question means that you'll feel the prompting of doing what it is that God wants you to do as you find it revealed in his word and in the power of his Holy Spirit. And the challenge is, are you open to that question? Does your life carry the correct perspective? This is what James is whispering in this passage. And are you open to responding correctly to the question and living your life, not in ignorance to God's call, but in obedience to it? Not in ignorance, but in obedience. In the film The Matrix, one of the main characters, Cypher, is sitting in a fancy restaurant and he says this. Some of you will know this quote. You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. So before I explain that quote, let me just say apologies for quoting the Matrix. It's not a 1990s Christian youth event. Uh, this is Denison Baptist in 2022. <laughs> but I share that quote because the reality is that a lot of what can drive our lives is not necessarily because that particular thing is true. So we can have lives that are driven by certain things. And the truth is, what is driving our lives doesn't necessarily need to be true. Instead, a lot of what can drive our lives is whether or not something gives us what our flesh really desires. Ignorance to the things of God and ignorance to his plan for our lives can, for a season, appear to be bliss. Just like that quote Cypher says, ignorance is bliss. We can live our lives contrary to God's plan and we can say this is bliss. Come on in, guys. So we must watch. We must watch why it is we do what we do and why it is we pursue what we pursue in our lives. Is it out of a desire for our own flesh or is it out of a desire to please God and to put him first? My hope and prayer for each one of us this morning is that if you love the Lord Jesus, if you believe the gospel, if you seek to live his life and the power of his Holy Spirit, then you'll be someone who longs to live for his plan and his purpose for your life and for this world around you. That collectively, we would all want to be men and women who intentionally seek to have the correct perspective, a godly perspective. We would all be men and women who have a perceptive faith, a perceptive faith.
So much so that you could actually say this, you could say God's will is bliss. Not ignorance, but God's will. God's plan, God's purpose is bliss. So James is subtly asking this question in verses 9 to 11. Do you carry the correct perspective? Do you carry the correct perspective? And in asking us this question, what he's doing is he's presenting us, he's answering this question, he's presenting us with one particular way as to how we should respond to this question. One correct way. It's not the only way that we can look at the world around us. No doubt about it. There is another wrong way of looking at this world. A way that we might describe as a worldly perspective. It'll be up on the screen for us. So a worldly perspective. That perspective says this. He or she who dies with the most toys wins. This is a living for the here and now. This is an eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of attitude. With this perspective, there is no consideration for anything else apart from the present, what we can get out of this world right now. You may have seen this new advert uh, for the online travel company, uh, Expedia, with the Scottish actor Ewan McGregor. Uh, and in this advert, McGregor says this, stuff, we love stuff, and there is some really great stuff out there. And he continues, but I doubt that any of us will look back on our lives and think, I wish I'd got a slightly sportier SUV, which I think is a big car, uh, or an even thinner TV, or found a trendier scent. I wish I'd discovered a crunchier chip or crisp, or found a lighter light beer, or had an even smarter smartphone. McGregor continues in his little sermonette. Do you think any of us will look back on our lives and regret the things we didn't buy or the places we didn't go? And then cue the Expedia logo. Now, this is a fascinating advert because what it's doing is lifting a bit of the curtain on what our world really lives for. And in lifting the curtain, it's also highlighting that what we actually live for is nonsense. None of it really satisfies. None of it really fulfills. It won't bring us fulfillment. It won't complete us. And we all know this is true. We see how people with money and luxuries and wealth and celebrity, we see how messed up they are. I mean, you only need to look at the two celebrity court cases that are going on right now just to see how broken and messed up our world is, particularly when people have money and wealth and material things. But sadly, for McGregor and Expedia, the solution they present, don't live for stuff, instead live for travel see the world, then your life is going to be complete. That kind of attitude is not going to fulfill either. It's not like I'm going to be on my deathbed saying, I wish I'd, I went to Millport more. <laughs> um, I know Expedia are probably not promoting the Iowa Cumbria. But you know, I've been, I've been to some pretty cool places around the world. In all honesty, I'm, I'm not going to be on my deathbed thinking about all these cool places that I've been to or the places I didn't get a chance to see. The perspective of the world is to live for the here and now and to live for the stuff that we can get from the here and now. The perspective always falls short and it always leaves us wanting more. And the solution is never, ever more and more stuff. It's never going to satisfy. It leaves us even more broken. The more stuff we have, more often than not, the more sin exists and the more problems we accumulate. So we can be confident this morning that this worldly perspective 
is not the perspective of James in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 1. The other perspective that we can have, which is not what James is tapping into, and this is particularly true within this Christian subculture that we live in, is one that blends the perspective of the world with our Christian faith. And I honestly think this is the one that we are most susceptible to. Particularly if we have faith in Jesus, this one I'm going to call a weird 21st century Christian perspective. Uh, this is something that we've touched upon already through this series at different points. This is something we will touch upon more and more. With this one, the attitude can be such that we want a bit of Jesus and we want a bit of the world, both at the same time. We have two different feet and two different camps and we end up doing the spiritual splits. I hope you know what I'm talking about because it's a temptation that all of us face to have a bit of Jesus and a bit of the world. And it's actually one that's steeped in legalism. This kind of perspective is not one where you have this overwhelming love for God in light of the overwhelming love that God has shown you. Instead, it's one that consciously or subconsciously says something like this. I want a little bit of God. He's enough for me in this, this area of my life. As long as I attend church on a Sunday, as long as I don't swear, as long as I do this or don't do this, then that's Christianity for me. That's enough. I just want to go this far rather than all in for Christ. And it doesn't wash. It doesn't wash. It never, ever washes. It doesn't wash with your life. Deep down, you know you cannot live this contradiction. It doesn't wash with the world around you. The world looks at us and sees how we have this this little bit of Jesus and this little bit of the world and our life looks like a contradiction. Most importantly, it doesn't wash with God. You may convince others that you're living for God, but he doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart and he sees your heart. He sees what's really going on. So in light of these two perspectives, what does the Lord require of each one of us? If the worldly perspective and the weird 21st century Christian perspective aren't the perspectives for you and for me, then what, do, what are we to do? How are we to live? What perspective should we have for our lives? Well, let's have a look at Matthew 22 and verses 37 to 39. Words that connect directly with our passage of this morning in James. Jesus says this, the most important command and the second most important command. Words that, that most of us will know well. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the correct perspective, the perspective that glorifies God, that makes much of God, is one that has this love relationship with the one who first loved us, the one that blessed us so that we could then be a blessing to the world around us, but we could also live lives of worship to him we could love God with all that we are because he has first loved us amen God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son so that if we decide that he's going to be lord of our lives if we believe in him the promise is that we will not perish we will have eternal life John three sixteen. and I wonder this morning if you've never ever made that decision to follow Christ what is stopping you from doing that today Make a decision to put him first and see how God transforms your life.
There's no guarantee that it's going to be plain sailing, but the most important point in all of this, all of this when it comes to this decision you make for Christ is you will have Jesus and he will make all the difference to your life. You'll have peace. You'll have contentment. You'll have satisfaction in him. You know, I would count it a tremendous privilege to talk with you about that if you wanted to make a decision today to follow him. So do speak to me after the service. Eternity is what Jesus is speaking of here in this passage in Matthew. Love God in light of all that I have planned for you in eternity. And what James is tapping into is eternity as he asks this question in verses 9 to 11, do you have the correct perspective on life? And what he presents us with here in verses 9 to 11 is a need for you and I to have what I'm going to describe as an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective. Um, what does that mean? What does it mean to have an eternal perspective? Well, it means we're not primarily thinking about the here and now. It means our lives actually choose to say, he who dies with the most toys still dies. It means we're not living in such a way that people around us would look at our lives and think that we think that heaven doesn't exist. So let me lovingly provoke you here as I provoke myself as I think about this. You know, when it comes to thinking about living in light of eternity, your money, your money, what you do month by month with what you receive is probably the most accurate indicator as to whether or not you have an eternal perspective. If you give generously for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of his ministry and his mission, then you're most likely thinking eternally. But if you're someone who gives cautiously with reservation, or someone that doesn't give at all to the ministry and mission of the church, the reality is that's someone who's not carrying an eternal mindset. And there are so many passages in the New Testament that I could tap into when it comes to this point. But let me just highlight these words from Matthew, these words from Jesus, Matthew 6 and verses 19 to 21. Jesus connects the role of money and the reality of eternity in this passage. Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me just say this morning, Jesus isn't giving us a recommendation here. He's not giving us a recommendation. This is a command from Christ. All of which ties in with our passage in James. So let's read these words again. James chapter 1 and verses 9 to 11. James says this, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with a scorching wind, dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. So to have a perceptive faith is to see the rich and poor in the way that James sees them. And the reality is, this is the way that God sees the rich and poor. We see the rich and poor in this way, not separating ourselves 
from these categories. We are at the center of either one of these categories. We identify ourselves within this passage. And when we choose to do that, we actively choose to live differently in light of what God's word says here. That's the challenge. That's the challenge for each one of us. It's so easy for us to look at this and say, well, I'm not this person, I'm not the rich, and I'm not the poor, therefore it doesn't apply to me. But it's one or the other. We either rich or poor. Who are we? And how are we going to live our lives? Are we going to carry this eternal perspective? Let's look at verse 9. James says, Let the brother of humble circumstances, let the brother of humble circumstances, I'm just going to stop there. And saying that we can be certain that he's speaking of believers when he says brothers. It simply refers in the Greek to brothers and sisters in Christ. And although James does not refer to the rich as brothers in verse 10, the context of James around this passage and the particular wording of James in verses 9 to 11 cannot permit us to separate the rich person from the poor person as non-believer and believer. So we can't say that James is challenging poor believers and rich non-believers. It would not really make sense when you read it like that. It would also imply that our possessions determine whether or not we are or aren't saved. Instead, we can say that the rich, we can say that the poor and the rich mentioned here are both brothers and sisters in Christ. So James writes his words here, and as he does so, with all of his words in his letter, he wants to strengthen the church. He wants to strengthen the believers. He recognizes that the church is this combination of rich and poor, and he has a word for each category within the life of the church. This is what he's getting at as he speaks to these poor and rich brothers in Christ. And we can also be certain that this phrase, humble circumstances, in verse 9, is not primarily a reference to someone who has an attitude of humility in the midst of their particular circumstance. That's definitely an aspect of it, but it's not primarily what James is getting at here. We can be sure that humility is central to this person's life, but it's a humility because of this person's particular wealth or lack of wealth. This person is materially poor, and he's directly contrasted with, it, with this material, materially rich person in verse 10. There's a direct contrast between the two. And it's to, it's to do with the fact that a person has or does not have money and possessions. So James says here, let this believer who is poor boast, boast in his exaltation. Now James uses this word boast. My guess is there's a part of you that hears this word boast and there's almost a kind of hesitancy to take hold of this word boast and to respond faithfully to this command. You might feel inclined to view boasting, any kind of boasting, as wrong. But have a look at what many commentators would argue is the source of James's words in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 9 and verses 23 to 24. So it'll be up on the screen for us. Jeremiah says this. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy, the wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Amen. For I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice and righteousness on the earth. 
For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. So not all boasting is wrong. We can redeem boasting. The question is, what are we boasting in? What are we boasting in? Are you boasting in you? You could easily say this to yourself and to other people. I know God. And because I know God, this means I am amazing. You could say that. You could boast in that way. That's the wrong way to boast, FYI. Or you could say this to yourself and to other people around you. I know God. And because I know God, I've discovered that he's amazing. Let me tell you about him. See, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to boast. It's what we boast in that's the key. So when James calls those of us who are poor to boast in our exaltation, what he's saying is that we should boast in what God is doing and what God will one day do in our lives. So we're boasting in the, the work he's doing within us, but we're also boasting the fact that we have this amazing eternity that has been planned by God for us, one where we will be with Jesus forever and ever for billions and billions of years. The Greek word that James uses here this word exaltation is the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 3 when he says that our lowly bodies will be transferred into glorious bodies. So James has given his readers the opportunity to look beyond what the world says they are as poor and to instead understand who God says that they are and what God one day has promised for them as sons and daughters of God. James is wanting them to have this eternal perspective. For them to rejoice and share and celebrate in this, this is what James is tapping into when he says boast. My command to you is to boast, but boast in this particular way, what God is doing in your life and what God has planned for you in eternity. So this is what a poor should do. They need to be men and women who carry this eternal perspective. And in verse 10, James then moves on to the rich. So they are to boast also, but as we will see from this verse, they are to boast in their humiliation and their humiliation. What does James mean by this? What does he mean by humiliation? Well, notice the connection. Humility language is used for both rich and poor in verse 9 and 10. So the brother of humble, humble circumstances, and the rich boasting in their humiliation. Humble, humiliation, it's the same root word. And the humiliation is this. All of the material, all of the monetary wealth that they have, whether by hard work or inheritance or by some other means, does not really mean anything in light of history, in light of human history, but more importantly, in light of this broad canvas of eternity. The temptation for a rich believer will always be one where they rely upon their money and possessions as the ultimate of their life. This is a particular struggle that rich people have instead of relying on God and his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, they're being humiliated. They're being humbled because they're constantly having to die to the world and live for Christ. That's not easy. The more you have, the more tempting it will be to live for the stuff that you have and not for Christ. So James says that the rich should boast in their humiliation. Their humbling experience at being rich doesn't really mean anything at all because they have an eternity with Jesus, one to look forward to 
and that should mean everything to them. The stuff they have in this world means nothing, but the plan and purpose that God has for the rich should mean everything to them. And James reinforces this point using the image of his son, the wind, the grass, and the flower in verse 11. So have a look at verse 11. I'm going to read the, the entire verse. James says this, For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind, dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. So the imagery that James uses here is reference to these hot desert winds from the east. And these winds would call, cause a whole host of different plants to be completely obliterated, completely destroyed at a rapid rate. It'll ha it would happen in a moment. This hot wind would come and it would destroy all this greenery, all these plants. These winds often came in a surprising manner at a moment where people least expected it. And so it is with the rich. They will die suddenly. They will die surprisingly. At times they will die quickly, just like the poor. And they will not take any of what they have worked for or received with them when they die. As we read these words from James, we can't help but see the connection of Isaiah 40. So have a look at Isaiah 40 and verses 6 to 8. So again, James is dipping back into the Old, the Old Testament and he wants us to see this is a biblical reality for every single person. So Isaiah says this, a voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade. When the breath of the Lord blows on them, indeed the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade but the word of God remains forever. So in both these passages, it's important to note that God through his word is not speaking about the impending judgment of people, which is all true, and this is all a future reality. But when James and Isaiah speak of what they speak of in both of these passages, they're speaking of the transience of life. Life is short. People are born, people live, people die. And then people are forgotten about People are forgotten about. All of this happens in a relatively short period of time. When you think about the breadth of human history, when you see how long eternity is, a rich person lives and a rich person dies. And it is tiny compared to this vast history and eternity that God has planned. This is humiliating for a rich person because they can so often live like they're going to be living forever, for years and years and years. So when the billionaire, the millionaire, the person who is rich dies, he's not going to take a single penny with him. He moves on to the next life with absolutely nothing. And in that sense, as James says, living for wealth will be a complete waste of time. Verse 11, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. The rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. And let me just highlight, there is a danger when we read this passage. And the danger is this, that, that we don't think we're rich. We don't think we're rich. When James writes about the poor, he's speaking about first century individuals who had nothing. And when I say nothing, I mean absolutely nothing. And while that's the case, 
for many around the world today, and that's even the case for some in this room, I think there's many of us who can too quickly say, I'm poor, when in reality, we're rich. We are rich. As far as I'm aware this morning, most of us in this room, I think all of us have four walls and a roof over our head. We have access to clean running water on a daily basis. We have the opportunity to receive free medical care at any time. Everyone in this room has been given, or most of us in this room have been given an opportunity to receive a full education. Uh, we've had the opportunity to eat food every single day. If you can agree to those sentences, then you're better off than a billion people in the world today. And the things I've mentioned are things that we see as basic. But many in the world would see these things as a luxury. And for the majority of us, we're not just surviving like those things I've just mentioned, we're thriving. Around 90% of the world's population don't own a car. How many in this room have a car? How many in this room have more than one car? Well, I raised his hand there, good, good man. <laughs> Around 40% of the world's population, one billion people have never had a phone. Never had a phone. As far as I'm aware, everyone in this room has a phone. Some of us have more than one phone. The internationally recognized poverty line is living life on less than $2 a day. $2 a day, which works out roughly, it's about £1.30. Half the world's population live on £1.30 every single day. You know, the average daily income for someone in Scotland is 70, 70 times, 70 times greater than what 3 billion of the world's population live on. So the average salary of someone in Scotland is 70 times greater than what 3 billion of the world's population live on. <coughs> so if you don't think that as people were prospering in light of these facts, let me just share this. Last year in the UK, we spent between one and one and a half billion pounds on ice cream. So this is my point this morning. We can look ahead and see that there are a number of people who are richer than us in our society. But when we realize there are three billion people behind us who are significantly poorer, not just marginally poorer, but significantly poorer than us, then we can come to only one conclusion this morning, that we are rich and we fall into that category that James highlights in our passage. The question is, having known this information now, how are you going to respond to what James says here when he speaks of the rich? Have a look at what Blomberg and Mariam note from this passage in James. Uh, they say this, uh, rich believers, which by global standards include almost everyone who has access to this book, must be aware of taking pride in their possessions. How many of us have fallen so in love with this world that if we knew we were to die tonight, we would experience genuine sorrow because of missed opportunities for various earthly, earthly pleasures. James does not teach that a person cannot be both rich and Christian, but he does suggest here that one's attitude to possessions proves crucial. Unless we recognize the utter transience of this life 
and the potential suddenness of its end. And unless we live each moment for Christ with a sense of urgency about redeeming the time, Ephesians 5.16, we risk tacitly worshipping the world. So we are rich. We are rich. How are you going to respond to that reality in light of James 1 and verses 9 to 11? This is the perspective that God is calling each one of us to. One that recognises how rich we are. One that does not put any hope in those riches. One that understands that all of it, all of it will be brought to nothing when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. As we close, let me just invite you to do a simple test. Um, and I hope and pray this will help you, I believe. It has helped me in the past, and I, I hope and pray it will help me as I go into this week. Uh, and it's, it's not complicated. Um, all I'm asking you to do is to look at the activity of your life. So look at every single detail of your life, both big and small, and please do not miss out. Don't miss something in your life because you think it's too small or too irrelevant. Because every area of your life and every single aspect of your life is important. So look at all of that. Do like a, a spiritual MOT and ask this question. Does this have eternal value? It will be up on the screen. Does this have eternal value? Examine your life, big and small, and ask yourself the question. Does it have eternal value? Does it have eternal value? There's always a danger when you examine your life in that way. And the danger is that you see areas that do not carry eternal value, but you also see so many believers around you doing the same. And so you think to yourself, if all these believers around me are doing this, then it's okay, I can do it as well. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we don't live in light of what we see around us, particularly the church in the 21st century. We live our lives in light of God's word. If you were to honestly answer that question correctly, and if you were to respond in faith to that question with action, there's no doubt in my mind, as, as we've experienced in our lives, believers will approach you and they'll say something like this, what you're doing there, that's a step too far. You're, you're going too far. But this is not what we do in the West as Christians. You're too radical. You know, we've, we've heard that before. As you assess your life, as you contemplate living with a greater eternal perspective, let me just remind you, you're not going to be standing before any of these people on the day of judgment. None of these people are going to be standing before you. You'll stand before the one whose eyes are like fire, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's your eternal perspective. That's your eternal perspective. That will change who you are and what you do in 2022 and beyond. When you see, when you have a vision of this kind of God for eternity, this will impact the present day, the here and now. As we respond, let me just say, if, if you need prayer uh, for anything that we've spoken about, then and do speak to myself or someone you trust. After our time today, we have a, a short time of worship. We respond in various ways. And then we have a time of fellowship. In that time of fellowship, do speak to someone you trust. If you've been impacted by any of this, if you would like to receive prayer, uh, you may be burdened 
or overwhelmed by something, do make yourself known today. You may need healing for something. We believe in the God who does heal, who can heal. Uh, we would commit your situation to prayer and ask that God by his spirit would heal you. Maybe you even have a question about how best you can use your money, how more, how more effective you can be with your resources for God's kingdom and for God's glory. Then do speak with me after our time. Um, as we sing, we come to this table and we're, we're reminded of this incredible truth from 2 Corinthians 8 9. All that we've talked about in James 1, 9 to 11 is a picture of the gospel. And we see this highlighted in this verse. And it's up on the screen for us. James, in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. I don't think it's up on the screen, but I'll read it one more time. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was rich, that for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The great reversal took place through the gospel. Paul here is speaking of what this table represents. Jesus' body broken for us. Jesus' blood shed for each one of us so that we might not become materially rich, we might become spiritually rich. It was on the night in which he was betrayed that Jesus took a bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. We take this bread, we drink this cup and we carry this eternal perspective. We proclaim the Lord's favour until he returns. We look ahead to that day when he will restore all things. So there's nothing more important than having this eternal mindset in both the big and small areas of our lives. And one of the most important things we can do today if we love the Lord Jesus is to come to this table and to give him thanks for all that he is and all that he has done for us. So let's pray together as we now respond in worship. So Father, we, we thank you that, that you are a loving and faithful God. We thank you that, that you don't just call us to live a certain way, but you also equip us. You empower us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that as we have thought about this idea of living in light of eternity, that you would give us a, give us a desire to live this way, but you would also enable us that we would have the courage to step out in faith as we go into this week, that we would make important decisions, both small and big, that would have an impact for eternity. It would not be about us, it would be about you, and it would be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.